a lot of people tend to joke around like, you know, famous last words are always something like, watch this or hold my beer or whatever. Um, for the people that we're going to discuss today, that was definitely the case. Um, although they were mostly successful stunt people in their lifetimes, they also did a lot of just ridiculous things and not ridiculous as in cool, but just ridiculous as in like mind bogglingly stupid. It's our weird world. Our weird world. Welcome to Our Weird World. I'm your host, John Henson, and today we are looking at uh, four people, or sorry, five uh, people, uh, silly, just really silly stunts. I like alliteration. Last week we had ridiculous riots, and now this week we have silly stunts, because words are fun. Um, this week we're looking at Sam Patch, Robert Emmett Odlum, Annie Edson Taylor, uh, The Crash at Crush, and Robert overcracker um just some really stupid things that happened and i'm glad they did because they're very entertaining and so without further ado let's jump into story time story time This week's tales begin in Rochester, New York, which is like Buffalo's smaller, dirtier cousin on the Great Lakes. Um, I've actually been to Rochester, and I really only visited because the city has two pretty big waterfalls that flow right through downtown. And I really love waterfalls. Um, High Falls in downtown Rochester is easily the more famous of the two waterfalls and was the height uh, or was the site of several stunt attempts as an alternative to Niagara Falls. One of those stuntmen was Sam Patch, who from an early age entertained his friends and curious onlookers by just jumping off of things. Um, By 1829, he had become famous for jumping off of waterfalls, bridges, and ship masts. In October of 1829, Patch twice jumped 110 feet from a ladder erected at the base of Niagara Falls. Uh, The events were a success, bringing him nationwide fame. And his catchphrase was, some things can be done as well as others, which, I mean, yeah, obviously. Like, I don't know why. Like, yes, some things can be done as well as others. Yeah. Like, he's not even saying anything, like, deep there. Um, but for whatever reason, his catchphrase became a popular saying across the country again, like, even though it doesn't actually mean anything, um, in November, 22 year old patch arrived in Rochester and announced that he would jump off of the 94 foot, uh, high falls. It's 94 feet high, but it's also called high falls. Very original. So on November 6th, he walked out onto a ledge in front of 8,000 people and tossed a bear cub into the water to see how dangerous it was because you used to be able to do inhumane things to animals in the name of testing human safety. Uh, the cub, extremely irritated at the very least, you know, still successfully swam back to shore. It was totally fine, even though it just got chucked 94 feet off of a ledge into what was probably very cold water. So <clears throat> then Patch, you know, seeing that the bear was fine, he did his thing and made his jump. Um, unfortunately the, the jump didn't raise the amount of money that he would have hoped. So he announced that he would make the jump again a week later, but rather than jumping from the top of the falls, patch constructed a ladder to increase the height of his jump to 125 feet. But just before he jumped from the ladder, he lost his balance and fell in an uncontrolled heap into the river. 
and Patch smacked the cold water with the loudest belly flop anyone in Rochester had ever heard. And not surprisingly, Patch did not resurface. Um, while many people thought that he just, you know, kind of snuck over and swam over to a nearby cave to hide and enjoy the pandemonium he created, uh, Patch's frozen body was actually found downstream the next spring. So, you know, don't jump off of waterfalls is the, you know, takeaway there. Um, the next story is that of Robert Emmett Odlum, who was one of seven children born to a working class family in Ogdensburg, New York, on August 31st, 1851. Uh, three of Robert's siblings died as infants, and then after his father died, the family bounced around several large cities in the United States and Canada before settling in St. Louis. Uh, when Robert's brother disappeared shortly after joining the Union Army, the family started moving around again in hopes of finding him. Uh, although the Odlums sympathized with the Confederates, oddly enough, uh, having a family member in the Union Army left them in a tough position during the war. Uh, they spent most of their time actually stuck in Memphis, which was a Confederate city held by the Union. And when Union troops bulldozed their home to make an artillery path, which is crazy, like, you know, it's the 18, it's the middle of the 1800s. Like, there's, it's not like, you know, there's a huge population density, you know, in Tennessee. Like, you can probably go around it. But whatever, they, they their home was bulldozed. Um, and so, you know, rather than stay in Memphis, they moved south to Mobile, Alabama. Uh, despite that rough childhood, um, Robert spent most of his time just practicing swimming as a way to pass time and just to help take his mind off the fact that his life was just pretty awful. Um, after the Civil War, Robert made a home for himself in Washington, D.C. and opened the Natatorium, which was his own swimming school. He quickly gained fame, gained fame around the city and even provided swimming lessons to the children of Presidents Hayes and Garfield. Uh, however, Robert wasn't satisfied with that life and he wanted something more. Uh, he started challenging people to $500 swimming races, but no one would accept because they knew like he was such a good swimmer, like no one stood a chance against him. And after jumping 90 feet from a wooden platform over Occoquan Falls in Virginia, Robert realized he was onto something. And so when the natatorium went bankrupt, Robert decided to become a full-time daredevil. After performing other jumps and swimming stunts, Robert Odlum uh, decided to join the discussion about fire safety <laughs> that was going on at the time and how jumping out of a burning building, falling through the air, and landing on a safety net would not kill you. Um, basically... You know, it was kind of that same argument that people had when trains were first developed that just the speeds uh, would be so high that your skin would just like be ripped off of your body, which, you know, is is a pretty stupid thought. Like, I, I, I've always thought that was really stupid. But then if you think about it, like, you know, I'm sure people dealt with windy days, you know, and so like early trains or even you falling out of a burning building, you're not going faster than a really high wind gust. But, you know, whatever. Um, so to prove that falling from any height uh, onto a safety net was totally safe, Robert decided to jump off of the Brooklyn Bridge into the East River in 1885. And on May 19th that year, he got set for his demonstration. Uh, the police who learned of the stunt were actually not okay with it, considering it was pretty illegal to jump off of the Brooklyn bridge, but Robert was prepared for this. And he sent two of his friends to the bridge to distract police and act as a decoy at 5:35 PM. As the tugboat containing spectators and rescue divers passed nearby, Robert jumped off the bridge. 
However, an unexpected gust of wind blew beneath the bridge as he jumped, distorting his body and causing him to smack the water with much less grace and control than he wanted. Um, he was immediately knocked unconscious, but and and his uh, unconscious body was then hoisted onto the rescue boat where doctors started trying to bring him back. Um, eventually, he regained consciousness and he asked... Uh, you know, his friends around, he's like, uh, is it all over? Did, did I make a good jump? And as he talked, blood just began spurting from his mouth. And he's like, am I spitting blood? No, it's just brandy, said one of his friends, because you know how brandy looks and tastes like blood. And, you know, I don't know. Maybe the doctors had you know given him a shot of brandy uh, to, to wake him up or something. I don't know. Um, unfortunately, Robert died 45 minutes later. Uh, the autopsy revealed three broken uh, bones, three broken ribs, and that his kidneys, liver, and spleen had actually exploded when he hit the water. Um, however, oddly enough, the cause of death was listed as a concussion. I don't know how that's possible, but there you go. Um, his his whole idea that falling was safe, you know, even though it technically is, if you're caught properly, it did not go well. Um, our next stunt man or stunt woman in this case is Annie Edson Taylor, who was born on October 24th, 1838 in Auburn, New York. It's strange how New York is a common theme here. Um, Annie had a normal childhood and actually went off to study to be a school teacher. Uh, during her studies, she met David Taylor and got married. So that's how she got her name, Annie Edson Taylor. And as young married couples did in the 1800s, they immediately started trying to have kids. Um, unfortunately, their first child died as an infant, and then David actually died shortly after that, leaving Annie with absolutely nothing. So with her newly formed family all dead, Annie spent the next few years bouncing from job to job in various cities across the United States. She arrived in Bay City, Michigan to teach dance before moving to Salt St. Marie to teach music. Unfortunately, nothing ever stuck, and after fruitless stops in San Antonio and Mexico City, Annie returned back to Bay City, Michigan to try again to be a teacher. Um, at this point, Annie was getting older and realized that she was going to end up in a poor house if she didn't get her finances in order. But rather than focus on a career path or even just trying to win the lottery, Annie decided that her best chance to make a ton of money was to fling herself over Niagara Falls in a barrel. Um, no one had ever done that before, and Annie believed that accomplishing the feat would bring her worldwide fame. So she ordered a custom oak barrel and lined it with a mattress and set out for Niagara Falls. Uh, shockingly, she found it really difficult to get help with her stunt because no one wanted to be responsible for what would basically be an assisted suicide. Um, but to prove that the barrel was totally safe, Annie stuffed a cat inside it on October 22nd, 1901 and sent it off over the falls. Um, after floating along the Niagara river for 17 minutes, the barrel was fished out of the water and the cat was totally fine. I mean, it had a small cut on its head, but otherwise it survived and went on to live a normal life. So two days later, on her 63rd birthday, Annie climbed into the barrel. Uh, she had a few friends screw the lid on and compress the air inside the barrel with a bicycle pump. They plugged the final hole with a cork and pushed the barrel into the river. And in less than 20 minutes, Annie had plunged over the falls and was rescued from the river with, ironically, like the cat, uh, she just had a cut on her head, but otherwise she was totally fine. Um, 
Annie, Annie went on to do a speaking tour following the stunt in hopes of gaining more money and fame, but no one really cared about her. Uh, and to make things worse, her manager, Frank Russell, stole her barrel, and she ended up draining her life savings, hiring private investigators to retrieve it until it was eventually found in Chicago. Uh, Mary spent the next few years posing for pictures with the barrel, writing a novel and working as a medium, but she, and, uh, she eventually died on April 29th, 1921 at the Niagara County infirmary. Um, so we're going to, for this next story here, we're going to go away mainly from a story about people to another dumb event stunt. Um, in 18, and this happened in 1896, uh, in central Texas and if you've ever been to Central Texas now, uh, there's not a lot going on. There was definitely not a lot going on in 1896. And so George Crush was bored out of his mind. And so he decided to see what would happen if two trains had a head-on collision. And so as the general passenger agent of the Missouri-Kansas-Texas Railroad, Crush was able to have train fares to West Texas, where he worked, uh, reduced to $2. And West Texas is the name of the town. It's not a region of West Texas. It's the town of West. Uh, if you remember, actually, West made the news a few years ago when they had a, a fertilizer plant explode. It was a gigantic explosion. Um, but anyway, Crush had the uh, train fares to West reduced to $2, and then he built a temporary town that he named after himself three miles south uh, of West by drilling two wells and erecting grandstands and circus tents that he borrowed from the Ringling Brothers. And so on September 15th, 1896, 40,000 people showed up in the makeshift town of Crush, Texas for a free event known as the Crash at Crush. And... You know, if you've learned anything from this episode so far, you should not be surprised to know that it did not go well at all. Uh, at 5 p.m., the two trains left their starting positions four miles apart. One train was painted bright green and the other one was painted bright red. Even more, each train was pulling cars loaded with old railroad ties, I guess for added explosive effect. Uh, the engineers on each train opened the steam engines to their prearranged settings and then jumped out. Um, I assume like crush thought the trains would just kind of bump into each other, make a loud boom and then topple over much to the excitement of the crowd. Because I mean, even orchestrating something of that disappointing magnitude was still a tall task in the 1890s. Um, instead, what actually happened was way crazier. Um, the two trains collided at 45 miles per hour and immediately exploded on impact, sending chunks of hot metal debris hundreds of feet into the air, which then soon began raining down on the 40,000 spectators. Uh, one bolt shot from the engines and flew into the eye of the event photographer, and three other people were actually just killed by the you know flying hot metal debris. Uh, as you might expect, Crush was immediately fired from the railroad. Um, yeah, I, you know, I actually like to imagine like this scene, um, you know, where if you imagine it like a movie, like crush is just kind of standing next to his boss as shards of metal are raining down around them. And he's just like, you know, I guess I should probably go clean up my desk. Huh? (laughs) Sorry about that boss. But, uh, surprisingly, like no one seemed to care or get really upset or offended by the event. Um, including, you know, the remaining, you know, 39,995 spectators who thought it was the greatest thing they had ever seen. And because of that, Crush got his job back the next day. Um, so, you know, stupid, stupid stunt that got a lot of people hurt, but 
nothing ever really bad happened other than, you know, three people died. So our last stuntman here, a short story. It's the story of Robert Overcracker. Um, nearly 100 years after Annie Edson Taylor's stunt at Niagara Falls, uh, Robert Overcracker thought it would be a great idea to do something similar, but much more insane. Um, Overcracker, who was actually a professional stuntman, spent seven years planning his own jump off of Niagara Falls. Uh, his final plan, after what was likely one of hundreds of options, was to ride off the top of the falls in a jet ski and deploy a rocket-powered parachute that would provide him with a pleasant, easy descent to the bottom. So, I mean, really, what on earth could possibly go wrong here? Um, on October 1st, 1995, after backing out of two previous attempts, Overcracker raced his jet ski down the Niagara River and sent himself flying over the edge of the falls. Uh, almost immediately, he disappeared beneath the white rushing water because his parachute never deployed, and his dead body was found sometime later. Shocking. Um, according to the coroner, Overcracker actually hadn't been crushed to death by the force of the falling water. Instead, he had just simply drowned. And honest, and the only reason that he even attempted uh, this stunt was to raise awareness for homelessness because no one on this planet is aware of homelessness. And, uh, you know, that's totally fitting in to this story. So there we go. Uh, stuntmen and just dumb stunts altogether. Never really a good idea. Um, you know, I, I'm sure many of us did a lot of stupid things as younger people and luckily didn't die from it, but these people did. And so let's see what we learned today that maybe some of these people did not. <laughs> What did we learn? Number one, you could hurl bear cubs and cats over waterfalls just to make sure that you wouldn't get hurt, which is insane. But luckily, those, at least in these stories, survived. Uh, Number two, yeah, even though it is safe to jump from a building onto a safety net, it is not safe to jump off of a bridge 100 feet into the East River it's probably going to hurt a lot and you could die. And number three, uh, if you want to raise awareness for something, let's make sure it's something that a lot of people aren't generally aware of. All right. So maybe don't raise awareness for homelessness because we're already very aware of that. Next week on Our Weird World, it is another big episode. It is our Black History Month extravaganza. And just leave your judgment at the door. Um, Yeah, you know what? Spoiler alert. It is going to, there's not going to be a lot of flattering stories about, you know, African Americans and black people. All right. It's going to be some weird and less than flattering stories. And that's okay. Because guess what? Outside of Japanese July, pretty much all of these other stories have been about white people. So, you know, there's it's what we're going to do. And you're going to like it. Well, I don't know. You don't have to like it. But it's you know what? If you don't like it, skip next week's episode. I don't care. 
all right that yeah all right anyway thank you for listening though um you know if you want you can tell all your friends but most importantly keep it weird